God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Man, it's good to see some of you guys in church. I, I'm seeing some faces I haven't seen in a while. I've been missing you. Have you missed us? Amen. Well, we're sure glad that you're back with us. That thing reads a whole lot better if you turn it right side up. I remember hearing the story of Don Coble. He was a... a he was a general in the army, and he went to church, and his son, they plopped a big old Bible in his lap and said he was halfway through the service before his, dad, his son said, Dad, Dad, turn it over. He'd never been in church before. He didn't know what was going on. It's a great story about how he came to Christ. Anyway, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 59 to start with this morning. I'm going to kind of move around the Scripture. I'm not doing a uh, expository message this morning. It's more of a topical message, but... <clears throat> the enemy is definitely raging in, a, in the world today and right here in America. And he's raging particularly, I believe, against the body of Christ. How many of you believe that? We're seeing a, a, an assault on the church like I have never seen before. Even in the, the movements that we're seeing throughout the nation, the, the most recent, the Black Lives Matters, somebody brought to my attention the other day that that the protests in Oregon, is it in Oregon where they had the big protest? I think that's where it was at. That they're burning Bibles. And I'm thinking, what does burning a Bible have to do with a police officer shooting somebody? Because you see, it's much deeper and darker and more sinister than just what it's being portrayed. It's spiritual, church. What we see going on in the land today is spiritual, and a lot of it is against the, is against the body of Christ. And uh, throughout your Christian experience, you're going to experience that. There's the, the enemy's going to, he's going to be after you your whole life. And there's going to be times that you're going to be on the mountaintop and life is good and you're just worshiping God and everything's great, and then you're going to find yourself in the valley. And, and that's just life. And, when, and David talked about that. He said, yea, though I walk. Everybody say walk. I don't lay down in the valley. If you lay down in the valley, you're going to die. Yea, though I walk. And I, this is the good news. Through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have to set up my tent and live there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. People use that at the funeral. Really got nothing to do with the funeral. It's talking about our life. Because up on the mountaintops and stuff, it was a high point. When you got the high ground in a, in a, in a battle, you, are, you have the advantage. But it's in the valley. Actually, in the valley, what is being described there, that's the fertile low grounds. It's where the shrubbery and the bushes and the things grow. That's where the lions would lay in the shade of the bushes and the bears and the wolf packs would be there and bandits and, and robbers and, and, and uh, people that wanted to hurt you would hide and ambush you from those people places in the valley. So what he's talking about, and, and actually we live in the valley a whole lot more than we do on the mountaintop. That's where we live. There's a lot of challenges in life. And what, what David was saying is, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear evil because God's with me. His rod and his staff comfort me. Those are weapons that you can use to defend yourself. They comfort me. And so, life can be tough, church. Life can be tough sometimes. And it's just life. That's not a bad confession. It's just a fact. Life can be tough. Life sometimes seems bad. 
But church, God is good. Life might seem bad, but God is good. Now, really, Isaiah 59 is more a backdrop to the message that I'm wanting to preach today. It's not actually what I'm preaching on. But Thursday night, we had one service. And as the worship team was worshiping the Lord, I was just spending time in God's presence. And this, spirit, this scripture came to my mind. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how God talks to you. But sometimes that's the way the Lord speaks to me. Just a scripture that I have no reason to think about just comes to my mind. And that scripture came to mind. And I... I actually pulled out my phone and did a little research back there. I hope Hunter wasn't offended that I was, he was worshiping back there. Pastor's back there. It looks like he's texting. Well, I wasn't texting. I was doing some biblical research, you know. And it says in Isaiah 59 verse 19, says, So shall they, they meaning the enemy, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Where does the sun rise? So that's from where the sun rises to where it sets. They're going to fear God. He said, in his glory from the rising sun, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Now, what I learned real quick in that research is that is actually an inaccurate description in the King James Version and I'm not saying it's contradictory there's, there's, that, the, the, that the Word of God is wrong. I'm just saying that when they translate from the Hebrew language into the in English language, sometimes some things are lost. Do you understand? The, the Hebrew language is very complex. And, and I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later. And actually what, what uh, the guy was pointing out in his commentary is that they put the comma in the wrong place. In the English translation, because it reads, when the enemy comes in like a flood, comma, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The comma doesn't belong there. In the original Hebrew, it reads like this. When the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. That changes the whole meaning of that passage, doesn't it? We think the enemy's coming in like a flood. No, he's coming in. But I'm here to tell you this morning that like a flood, the Spirit of God is going to lift up a standard against him because he said he would. I believe that. Lifting up a standard in the Hebrew word is N-U-S, noose. It's pronounced noose, N-O-O-S. It's used 142 times in the Old Testament. It means to flee. However, here it is spelled N-U-S-S. I'm going to raise up a noose against him. It means I'm going to oppose the enemy. It means we're not to flee from him, but we are to approach toward him. If it was just N-U-S, the enemy comes in, run. But N-U-S-S means we attack him. The idea of raising a standard, we think that's a style of living. I've always thought that when I read that passage. That's not what that's talking about. The standard was the flag of the army that would lead the army. In the Roman army, if you've probably seen it, it was a big pole. It was shaped with a T, and it had a big <clears throat> banner on it, and it was an eagle. The Roman, the Roman standard was an eagle, and it would lead the army into battle. Because many times in the battle, they're all spread out on the battlefield. They're fighting. They're screaming. Men are dying, and they're screaming out in pain. And you can't hear the orders of your commander. So you don't know what to do. You, your adrenaline is 
on the, off the chart. You're in a panic mode. You don't know which way to turn or which way to go. But you can always look and see where the banner is. And if it's advancing, you continue to advance. If it's retreating, you retreat. So the standard was what led you and gave you the instruction as to what to do and where to go. And so that's what this is actually picturing. How many of you remember seeing the movie The Patriot? Anybody ever seen that with Mel Gibson? And at the end of it, Benjamin Martin, is, he's Benjamin Martin, and his son Gabriel has died. Now, during his, Gabriel's time, he finds an old flag, and it's all tattered, and he's, throughout the movie, he's putting his flag back together. And so after he's died, the, uh, Benjamin Martin's friend's trying to get him to continue, and he said, I'm done, I'm not fighting anymore. And so the army goes off, and they're going to fight Cornwallis, and he's going through Gabriel's belongings, and he pulls out that flag. And, he, and, it, and the next scene you see, he's riding his horse just over the hill crest, and they can't see him. All they can see is the flag. And this horse galloping, and the flag is going just down this ridge, and everybody starts saying, to die, to die, to die. And then later on, when they get into the battle with Cornwallis, they deliberately retreat to draw them over the hill into an ambush. And during the battle, the, the lines break and they begin to retreat. And then the French guy calls out to Benjamin and says, Benjamin, the line is faltering. And you see Mel Gibson throw down his sword and go and get the flag and start charging into the British. And everybody that's retreating sees the flag going the other way, and they stop and turn, and they go back in and defeat the British. How many of you remember that scene right there? That is what this is talking about. When the enemy comes in like a flood, I'm going to lift up my standard, and we are to rally behind that. Church, this is his standard. Yes, amen. This is our banner. And the word of the living God will defeat the enemy every time if we will just follow this standard and lift it up and hold it up and we will not deny it, we will not back away from it. So in the Hebrew text here, it is using the aggressive verb called the palel stem where they drop the second radical and repeat the third radical. I tell you, the Hebrew language is complex. Basically, what that's meaning, they spell their words backwards. They're, drop, they're changing the vowel in the center, and they're adding a second letter at the end of it, N-U-S-S. -S. What that does is dramatically add to the verb's actions that's implied. It then becomes a super powerful palil or stem verb. The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against them. What it is saying is the Holy Spirit will energetically, furiously, with all his might, counteract the encroaching enemy of my soul. He will do it diligently, wholeheartedly, and fervently. This gives a whole new meaning to Romans 8.31. If God be for me, come on, who can be against me? He is my noose. He's living up the standard against him fervently with all of his heart to go into battle against him. The Holy Spirit, <laughs> with his help, we can then, what Romans 12, 21 says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The Greek verb there is nikeo. It means to conquer. In other words, I am not conquered by evil. I conquer evil with good. It also gives a new meaning to Ephesians 6, 17 when it talks about the sword of the Spirit. 
This is the sword of the Spirit, church. And it's not a, just a defensive weapon. It's a, 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 a weapon for opposition, for opposing the enemy. It's an attack weapon. So we need to <clears throat> constantly remind ourselves of this truth, that when the enemy attacks, church, if we focus on the enemy, people are living in fear today. Christians are living in fear. When we see everything that's going on in the world right now, People are living in fear. And if you focus on the enemy, you focus on your, your, your problems, you focus on the valley, you focus on the shadows of the death that's in that valley, you're going to put yourself in a bad, bad, bad way because you're going to wind up thinking that life is bad. Life is bad and forget that God is good. When that happens... Too often, people fall into the sin of self-pity, which is the topic I want to address this morning, the sin of self-pity. I've titled the message today, The Poison of Self-Pity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, God, that we don't have to fear the enemy. God, you are for us. You're for us. And even though the church, it seems like in America, is on its heels, God, it's been there throughout history many times, your people, God. It seems like they are just about to be defeated, but God, you always raise up a standard, God, against the enemy. You always deliver your people. And God, we're believing that there's going to be revival in America and that, God, you are going to come back in force, Lord, and defeat what the enemy is doing. Lord, the enemy thinks that they got the, got the church on the run, Lord, but we are not running, Lord. The standard has been raised, Lord, just like in that army. Army, you are charging into the enemy, and God, we're going to turn around and we're going to join in the attack. And God, I pray that that becomes a reality in the body of Christ today, Father, that we will get back to the truth of your word, God. We will stop distorting it, God, and we will preach it and teach it just exactly as it is in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen, amen. <clears throat> now, we're going to start out in the book of Numbers. God has freed Israel. He has defeated the approaching Egyptian army. He's provided for them. They're in the wilderness, and he's taken care of them by feeding them manna from heaven. But listen in Numbers chapter 11, how they remember their life in Egypt as opposed to the life that they're now living. Numbers chapter 11, verse 5, it says, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up, and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now, what do you see wrong with that verse of Scripture? One word, freely. We remember what we ate freely. Honey, there was nothing free when you were in bondage. The life of a Jew in Egypt, they got up in the morning, they went to work, they worked all day till dark, they went home, they ate, they went to bed without a bath, slept, got up the next day and did the same thing every day. Now, you tell me what's free about that. Honey, Satan doesn't offer you freedom of any kind. 
What has happened is the poison of self-pity has twisted the reality of how things were with the reality of how things actually are. There is nothing at all left except the manna which is before our eyes. They could not enjoy the things that God has given them to eat freely because of the illusion of the things that they ate as slaves. It distorts your thinking. It twists your mind. When people start feeling sorry for themselves, it distorts their view about everything. Amen? Boy, you guys are sitting there looking like a calf at a new gate. Are you with me? Say amen. <laughs> now, there's a true story I heard one time about two sisters, Mabel and Ethel. They were both elderly women. They were both widows. They were, uh, one of them married a very, very wealthy man, and he, he passed away. He had a huge insurance policy, and he left her fixed. She lived in a beautiful, fine home. She drove a nice car. And, and a pastor told this story one time, and I remember, and he said that woman was the most bitter, angry, mean woman I think I have ever known. She had everything, but she was just bitter and angry and mean. And her sister was bent over, her hands all gnarled up from arthritis. Her husband was a pulp widow, a chain broke, and a pile of logs fell on him and killed him. And he had no insurance, and he left her nothing. She lived on a government dole in the government housing, and she, she just basically had nothing. And he went to visit her one day, and she, he knocked on the door, and she didn't come to the door. So he walked around the back, he said, because there was a little concrete stoop on the back of all those apartments that sometimes she would go and sit there. So he walked around the back to see if she was there. And as he started to round the corner, he could hear her singing. Now, I think, did you put the, get the words to that song for me? This is what she was singing. When upon life's billows you are tempted and tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Are you ever burdened in a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the day goes by. When you look at others and their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings, money cannot buy your reward in heaven and your name on high. So amid the conflict, whether it's great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. And he said he stood there. As this little gnarled up woman said she was sitting there and she had a big pile of green beans. And she was breaking them with her little gnarled up, arthritic, inflicted hands with excruciating pain every time she would snap a bean. Singing, count your blessings. And he said, I stood there and cried. 
He said, I got it together. I went around there, and I said, she said, oh, pastor. He said, she was like this every time you saw her. He said, when Mabel came in, he said, when I saw her come through the door, Mabel Black Label, I tried to avoid her. I tried to find another way to go. But when Ethel came in, said it was like Jesus walked in the church. She was just the most pleasant, happy woman. And she said, oh, pastor, it's so good to see you. Pull up a seat on the, on the, on the back porch, she called it. He said, it wasn't big enough but for one chair. So he sat down on the corner and he said, Ethel, can I just ask you what, are you, what are you so thankful for today? You're thanking God. said, I heard you singing when I came up. She said, oh, pastor, the, the little girl upstairs had a baby and said they've gone. The, her husband's gone to the hospital to bring her and the baby home and said, I am cooking dinner for them tonight. And I thank God that I can be a blessing to that little couple. You see, self-pity, the sin of self-pity is lethal to the human spirit. This woman didn't feel sorry for herself, and she had the joy of God in her life. And her sister that had everything because of her self-pity was poisoned that everything was bad. It's lethal to the human spirit. Church is also the gateway to other spiritual evils that surround you because sin is never isolated. One sin always opens the door to a greater sin, a bigger sin, a worse sin. Self-pity, it may seem small because if you see Mabel riding down the road in her great big luxury car, you wouldn't think, well, she is a gross sinner like, say, a prostitute or a, a drug dealer or somebody that we would consider somebody's in really gross sin. You wouldn't look at that lady and say, man, she is a real vile sinner. But even though it may seem small, it always leads to greater sins. Now, we're going to look at real quick at three biblical examples of people that had the sin of self-pity, and I'm going to show you how that sin led to greater sin. The first one we had on our little video of Elijah, because here's this great prophet of God. He challenges the 850 false prophets of, of Jezebel, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, the two temples that she worshiped in the most, and calls down fire from heaven. And after he's done this great thing, he, he, he tells Ahab, Ahab, because he prays first of all and says that the heavens will be dried up and it didn't rain a drop for three and a half years because of his prayer. Do you see how powerful this guy is? This is the man that you chair the fire picked up and he ascended into heavens without dying. This great prophet. He dries the heavens, he dries the rain up for three and a half years. He calls down fire, challenges these 850 prophets, kills all 850 of them. Then he prays for rain. He goes up on a mountain, puts his head between his knees and tells the servants, what do you see? He said, I don't see a thing. Go look again. Seven times. And then he said, I see a cloud rising up out of the sea the size of a man's hand. He said, Ahab, run, for I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. He pulls up his robe and outruns the chariot. This guy was a man. Hey, come on. 
And then Jezebel hears about him killing her, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asher. I'll say, she sends him a four-line text message. May the gods that my prophets serve do the same to me if tomorrow by this time I have not done to you what you have done to them. And this great man of God who has challenged those same prophets, put their gods to the test, knows what those gods can't do, is afraid of a woman. And he runs all the way from the northern part of Israel to Beersheba, the far southern border, as far as he can get away from this woman that he's afraid of. You know, some of my husband sitting there said, Brother, if you was married to my wife, you'd understand that. <laughs> I'll pray for her, brother. What's happening here? He finds himself in a cave just saying, God, just let me die. How does this great man of God get to a place where he is in a cave saying, God, I just, I just want to die. Just, just kill me. Just let me die. Because self-pity will paralyze you. It will rob you of your confidence, of your boldness, of your strength, your faith. I mean, why didn't he just say, all right, Jezebel, come on. I'm standing here. I'm not going anywhere. You'll find me. I'm still standing at the feet of the river of blood of your prophets. If you want some of this, come and get it. I'm standing right here. Bring it on, honey. Why didn't he do that? No, he runs and hides. One minute he's on the mountaintop of power. Because sometimes, church, we're on the mountaintop. Other times we find ourselves in the valley. We find ourselves in a cave. It's as far as we can go, just wanting to die. Isn't that just like us? We're shocked to see it in this great prophet of God. But come on, if that can happen to a man like that, it can happen to any of us. Remember now, one sin leads to other sins. Because not now, here he is, he's feeling sorry for himself. Not only that, but now he is saying, Lord, I am the only one left. All of the other prophets have abandoned you, God. I'm the only one left. Because self-pity has now led to the greater sin of self-righteousness. You're the only one that's right. Everybody else is wrong. I'm the only one serving God. All of you have got it wrong. And I'm right. And God had to remind Elijah, said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 prophets that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Who do you think you are? But now let me just say, God didn't abandon him because of that attitude. A chariot of fire took him out of here. <laughs> what a great honor. I don't have to face death. Come and get me Jesus. <laughs> a chariot of fire, I'd like to ride that thing. I'm going to take that thing for a spin when I get to heaven, I think. 
I built a go-kart for my grandkids. They get on there. I'm taking that chair to fire lap or two around heaven, man. Hey, come on. <laughs> yeah, I like to see the horse pulling that thing. Wow. See, self-righteousness, it causes you to isolate yourself in a cave. I mean, God has a job for you to do, but you can't accomplish that job laying in your bed thinking you're the only one that's right. God can't use that. He's sitting there, and he's like, God, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah repented. Listen, this is the good thing. When the standard raises up, and it's going into the enemy, and he turns around from this self-pity party he's having, and he gets back on track, he has a double, an anointing and a double portion delivered from him to his, his successor, Elisha. Come on, sometimes God can use you on the other side of that pity party greater than he used you on the front side of it because we can learn some things from that pity party. I've been there, son. I have been there. And I believe that God used me out of that lesson that I learned there at a greater measure and a greater anointing and a greater portion than he did before I went through that. So sometimes God is allowing you to go through those things to teach you something. As long as you're smart enough to learn it. Amen? <laughs> the second example we find in 1 Kings 21 of the guy that he's dealing with is Ahab. Because here's Ahab. He's the king of Israel, most powerful man in the land. And he goes to his neighbor, and his neighbor's name is Naboth. And it's Nabut in Hebrew, but we, we pronounce it Naboth. And Naboth, he says, Naboth, I see you got this vineyard. There's all these grapevines out here, and it's right next to my kitchen. I would like to buy that from you. I'm going to take all them grapevines out, and I'm going to plant a herb garden there so they can cook from my herb garden. And Naboth says, I can't sell that to you. That's my family inheritance. And by Hebrew law, you can sell land that you've bought and purchased and acquired by other means, but what's been handed down to you through inheritance, you can't sell it. Even if you wanted to, you can't sell it. That's to prevent people from being greedy. Like, I'm going to sell off the inheritance so my kids don't have anything, but I'm going to live nice. That's the reason for that. And so Ahab, this great king, goes home, gets in his bed, faces the wall, and won't eat. Like a little booger mouth child in the corner pouting. Well, I'll hold my breath. Well, hold your breath, kid. You'll pass out. You'll breathe again. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'll just leave. You ever have, I'll just run away from home. Go help them pack their suitcases. Carry the door. Say, all right. They won't go far. They'll be back. <laughs> Amen. Come on. Too many times parents cave into that stuff. And here he is. He's pouting. He's a sulking. Sometimes, some people are sulkers. Who's sulkers in here? Some people are exploders. I heard one guy say, he said, I have been in ministry for 50 years. I've counseled marriages for 50 years. And said, after 50 years of counseling, said, I realized that my understanding of men and women said I had them backwards. I always thought women were sulkers and that men were exploders. He said, oh, no, I had that backwards. said, men are sulkers. Women are exploders. He said, they'll take it and they'll take it. He said, when they go off, it's like Mount Vesuvia or whatever. 
St. Helens, I mean, doom, the whole top's coming off. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know that some people, they're exploders, and Jezebel's getting ready to explode here. And so they're on their way back from Sunday school, and she's like, Ahab, what's the matter? Nothing. Now, come on now. Something's bothering you. What's the matter? Nothing. Going to be something if you keep pushing it. What's the matter? He's like, well, I asked Naboth to sell me that vineyard, and he wouldn't sell it. Church, I want you to learn something here. The sin of self-pity will empower the spirit of Jezebel. Because this self-pity is about to open the door to selfishness, greed, entitlement, self-justification, and self-worship. It empowers this spirit. Self-justification. I can do anything to get what I want, and I am justified in doing it. What are we seeing running rampant in our nation today? People that didn't get what they wanted. And they're sitting around feeling sorry for themselves, and now they're burning America down and are justified in what they're doing. It's the spirit of Jezebel, I'm telling you. It's running rampant in our nation right now. And they shift the blame. They accuse others of the very same thing that they themselves are guilty of. Because she, she had a conspiracy. She conspired against Naboth, this good man, this holy man that's done nothing wrong. She committed perjury. She forged a letter, put the king's seal on it. She solicited false witnesses against him and accused him of blasphemy of all things. The woman has got 850 false prophets to a false god accuses him of blasphemy. and sedition against the king, and has him murdered. And then tells Ahab, go get your vineyard. Because sin is never isolated. One sin always opens the door to a greater sin, a bigger sin, a worse sin. Self-pity, it may seem small, because if you see Mabel riding down the road in her great big luxury car, you wouldn't think, well, she is a gross sinner like, say, a prostitute or a, a drug dealer or somebody that we would consider somebody's in really gross sin. You wouldn't look at that lady and say, man, she is a real vile sinner. But even though it may seem small, it always leads to greater sins. Now, we're going to look at real quick at three biblical examples of people that had the sin of self-pity, and I'm going to show you how that sin led to greater sin. The first one we had on our little video of Elijah, because here's this great prophet of God. He challenges the 850 false prophets of, of Jezebel, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, the two temples that she worshipped in the most, and calls down fire from heaven. And after the blood of Ahab's chariot out on the land of Naboth, and the dolls came and licked his blood according to the word of Elijah's prophecy. 
And he told Jezebel, said, The dogs will eat your bones at the wall of Jezreel, and you will be spread across the land so that no one can say, Here lies Jezebel. He then went and, and prayed over Jehu the prophet. His predecessor, uh, uh, his successor, Elisha, said, took a young prophet said, Do this. Take this horn of oil. Go there. Take Jehu. Go in, call him to an inner chamber, pour the oil over his head, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king of Israel. Said, Did you come out and you leave? And so Jehu became the king, and he went in, and his commission was to wipe out the seed of Ahab off of the planet of the earth. There is no descendants of Ahab today. Not one descendant of Ahab. Because Jehu killed them all. And after he killed the two sons, the, the sons of, of Ahab, he rides into the city of Jezreel, and, and Jezebel paints herself up and said, Jehu. And he rides in, looks up, and sees that, that little tra trashy woman up there, and he says, is, is there anybody on God's side? And two eunuchs said, we're on God's side. He said, throw her out. And they pitched her out of the window, and he rode his horse over top of her. Went in and sat down and ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Then he got up and said, well, I guess we ought to go bury the old hussy. She was the king's daughter. And they went out and there was nothing left but her skull, the palms of her hands, and the bottom of her feet to fulfill the prophecy of Elijah that the dogs will eat your bones at the wall of Jezreel and they will scatter you across the land so that nobody can say, here lies Jezebel. Guys, self-pity leads to some horrible sins. And if you don't repent, it leads to a horrible end. The last person I want to talk about, are you with me this morning? Getting anything out of it? Well, if you're not, i got a big old mirror sitting up here, and I'm getting plenty out of it. Amen. <laughs> I preach in a mirror most of the time anyway. Somebody said something last Sunday. said, when you said, when something goes wrong, do you cuss or do you read your Bible? He said, man, you were doing good, Pastor, until you said that. I said, well, if it makes you feel any better, I preach in a mirror most of the time. See, when you get angry, you, instead of cussing, I learned, I learned is a very good way to deal with it. You say, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second. Jeannie was doing that one day, and her grandson said, boy, Gigi, you know a whole lot of those. <laughs> she said, that's because I get to use them a lot. <laughs> if you get to Revelations, it's really bad, brother. <laughs> Somebody's really done you wrong, amen? Last person I want to talk about is Naomi. Naomi is a Jewish woman. She's married to uh, 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 Elimelech. She has two sons, is Melchon and Ch uh, Chelon. I can't ever get their names right. And they marry two Moabite women. Now, they're not supposed to do that. But they're running, there's a famine in Israel. So uh, Elimelech takes his wife and they run into the land of Moab where they had food that they could eat because they're going to starve if they don't. And so while they're there, Elimelech dies. And then later on, her sons grow up. They marry uh, or Orpha and Ruth. I mean, if you know who Ruth is, you've probably heard that. Ruth. And so then, Melhan and Chilon, they, they both die. And here is Naomi. She's a widow. Her husband is dead. Now both of her sons is dead. And now she's stuck with these two Moabite daughters that she didn't want in the first place. 
And so according to Hebrew law, she is supposed to have other sons, and those sons are supposed to grow up and marry these two women so that their brothers can have a posterity or seed in the land. And she said, look, I am too old for this. This is not going to happen. I release you from that. Go back to your people. And so Orpha says, good deal, I'm gone. Bye. But Ruth, she says that famous, famous statement that you find in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. She said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you from me. Man, isn't that a, man, talk about loyalty and commitment. And they, church, listen, people use that in weddings. Have you heard that in a wedding? Treat me not to leave you, forsake you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your God will be my, my God. Listen, if you want to be biblically accurate, turn around and say that to your mother-in-law. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh. <laughs> So there's a drought that comes to Moab, to the, to the lands of Moab, and, and they have to go back to Israel. So they, they go back to Israel, and here is an old widow woman that has lost everything, her husband, her sons, and she's got this daughter-in-law that's hanging around like a puppy falling around she can't get rid of. And so when she gets back, she, she enters the city, and they, they haven't seen her in a while. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, when they see her, it's like, oh, oh uh, Naomi, is that you? That's what we would do if we hadn't seen somebody. We know who they are. But you haven't seen them in a while. And so you say, oh, is that you? And Naomi says, why do you call me Naomi? Because Naomi means full. Why do you call me Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. What is she saying? Don't call me full. I've lost everything. I've got nothing. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. The word bitter there means toxic. As in poisonous, because God has done this to me. This woman is feeling sorry for herself, and she is bitter because she blames God for what's happening to her. And she just wants it all to go away, and I want this little pesky Boabite woman to just go on and leave me alone because she is poisonously bitter. Self-pity opens the door to bitterness, to blaming God, to blasphemy. How many of you are seeing this? So next you find them gleaning in the field because they're going to starve. So they, they're, they're in poverty. They have nothing. And so they're in the field of, of poverty gleaning. What would happen is when they would glean the field, they would leave the edges all the way around the field and the corners by Jewish law. 
because travelers and poor people had to have something to eat, and so they would be able to get, gather the gleanings of what was left after the harvest. Anything fell in the field, the harvesters couldn't go back the second time and pick it up. That was for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And so here, they're both widows. And so Naomi says, Ruth, I want you to go glean in the field. So she goes there, and she's gleaning, and here comes this man. He's like, why are you doing this? You, you don't need to be doing this. And he orders his servants to let her follow them, and then he tells, lets her glean among the sheaves. And then he just gives her grain, and she goes back and says, Naomi, look at this. She's like, who gave that to you? She said, this guy named Boaz. She said, oh, Boaz is my kinsman. He was related to Elimelech. Said, go back to that field. But this time, honey, put on some lipstick. <laughs> and a little bit of that Chanel number nine. Well, she tells him to go in at night and uncover his feet and lay at his feet. And so she does. Now, she doesn't sleep with him. She's laid at his feet. And he wakes up in the night and starts like, who are you? She tells him who she is. He said, you are my kinsman, but there's one closer than me. I, I must give him the opportunity to, to be your kinsman redeemer, to marry you for Elimelech's sake. When he didn't do it, then Boaz became the kingdom redeemer. But what you need to see here is this young lady, Ruth, and Boaz has a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David, who became the greatest king in Israel. Church, sometimes when you're feeling sorry for yourself and you don't know what is happening, God is getting ready to bless the body of Christ, perhaps, through what you're going through. If you will just give God the chance. She's getting ready to give birth to the greatest king, be in the lineage of the greatest king of Israel. The cure for self-pity is you follow the standard. You follow the order of the Lord no matter how it looks. Sometimes life looks bad. And people want to turn their back on God. They want to blame God. They want to get bitter. And they let this self-pity move into greater, greater sin. Instead of following the standard, no matter how it looks. The old song says, God will make a way when there seems to be no ways. He works in ways we cannot see. God will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength with each new day, God will make a way. God will make a way. So church this morning, what I'm getting at is whether you find yourself in a cave in Beersheba ready to die in one minute, if you will follow God's standards, you may be anointing somebody to do a double ministry of what you were able to do. Or if you find yourself a poverty-stricken widow gleaning just to get your next mouthful of food, if you will just follow God's ways, He may do something in you equivalent to being the lineage of the greatest anointing that's ever hit the land. The greatest king in Israel who went on to be one of the great grandfathers of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. A lot of times you say, God, I just don't understand what's happening. I don't understand it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? God, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is happening. 
that I refuse to feel sorry for myself. I trust you, God. I trust you. I trust you. See, our problems, we evaluate who God is based on what we're going through. If it looks good, God is good. If it looks bad, God is bad. We call it bitter. Call me bitter because God's doing this to me. All self-pity at its roots is anger towards God. All of it is anger towards God. If we lose our job, we lose our home, there's problems in our family, there's problems in our personal life, in our health, in our nation. God, if you were just doing a better job, because we hear this, why does God allow fill in the blank? So when everything's good, God is good. Everything is bad, God is bad. Church, here's the truth. Life is tough. It's tough. Sometimes it seems bad, but God is good. He's good. The cure for self-pity is worshiping a good God. You look at David. Read the Psalms. This is a guy who was going through it. He's being chased all over the place by a king. His own son, Absalom, tries to overthrow his kingdom. His own son turned against him. But he continued to praise God. And because of that, God said, That is a man after my own heart. Cure for self-pity is worshiping a good God. Job found himself in a place where he said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So whether you're in a cave, you've lost everything you're gleaning, you're driving a luxury car, and you've got everything like Mabel. You're popping beans with hands that causes you pain with every snap. Praise Him. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. You know what I found to be true? There is far more good in my life than there is bad. Sometimes it's just a matter of focus. What am I looking at? You know, my whole body can be in good shape, and I hit my finger, and I forget about the whole body that's feeling good because my attention's on one thing. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's the pain. And that's what we do. We feel sorry for ourselves because we're focused so much on the pain instead of all the good that we have and giving God praise and glory for all the good that we have. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to sing this morning. Blessed be his name. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But I'm going to say blessed be his name. And why don't we sing it like we really do mean it? How many of you got good in your life? Come on, more good than bad. You might have. Listen, I'm not making light of what people go through. 
Life is tough. Sometimes it's bad. You're going through some tough stuff, and I don't make light of that. But there's far more good than we can give God glory for. So let's praise Him this morning. Hunter, lead us in that song, if you would, please. Turns back to praise. What's the matter with his mic? Where's my sound guy? <laughs> the Tim's on the camera in the back. He said, Tim Burger to the rescue. There I am. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. And every blessing you pour yes. out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be
Hello. In the back there, you'll hear this one. Isaiah 61.3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. When you sing, you sing that line, though there's pain in the offering, I will still say, blessed be thee. And this scripture came to mind. He said, I'm going to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness. Come on, how many of you want to stand like a tree of righteousness? Then you put on the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Self-pity is heaviness. Telling you that the cure for self-pity is worshiping a good God. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and just repeat this after me. Jesus, blessed be your name. You are a good God. When I see goodness, when I don't see your goodness, you are still the Lord of my life. You're generous. You're loving. You're gracious. You're merciful. And you're kind. No matter what comes, I will worship you. Through the pleasure through the pain, I will not wallow in self-pity, but I will walk in truth. With God's help, I will face each new day with an attitude of praise. Father, we just ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, to help us, God, every day to remember the message that we have heard here today. And not forget it, God, because sometimes, Lord, when we hit our finger, that's all we can think about. God, that is so me. That's so me. I, that's, that's the way I'm built. But, God, this morning I repent for the sin of self-pity. And, God, I choose rather to focus on your blessings, God, and count them one by one. So, God, I pray for the body of Christ today, Lord, as we see the enemy, Lord, just raging against the body of Christ, that we will not fix our eyes on what the enemy's doing, but, Lord, that we will understand, God, that we have just gone through what you have declared to be your standard, Lord. It's exactly what you're talking about. Lord, I will raise up a standard against the enemy. And it's your word and the truth of your word and the lessons that we learn to praise you, God, when the enemy is raging. Instead of focusing on what they're doing and saying, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. No, I'm going to say, God is so good. He's so good. He's so good. And then, Father, you said that they will fear you from the west and your glory from the rising of the sun in the east. And when they come in, Lord, like a flood, God, raise up your standard against them. And, Lord, we will rally behind that standard, Lord. Take the sword of the Spirit, God, and defeat the enemy. 
with the truth of your word. Now, Jesus, I pray that every word that we have said today has been glorifying to you. God, I didn't say that to discourage or to condemn anyone, Lord, but to help people see, God, the severity of falling into Satan's trap and where it will take them, Lord. If someone is wallowing in self-pity this morning, God, I pray that they find a place before you and just repent of that, God. Turn around. God, make them an Elijah who doubles his, his effort in ministry, God. Lord, make them a Naomi. God, that they give birth to something that is great, God. But God forbid that they become an Ahab or a Jabel, Jezebel that refuses to repent, Lord, and has a horrible, horrible end. So, Jesus, we just leave this message with those who have heard it today. God, you give it the increase. Holy Spirit, you water it. Help it to grow, Lord. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, I speak a blessing over the body of Christ this morning, Lord. Everyone that is represented here today, Lord, I speak a blessing over their home. God, may it be a refuge, Lord, an escape from the world, Lord, a place where the Holy Spirit is honored. God, strengthen the family today, husbands and their wives parents and their children, siblings one with each other. Lord, I speak a special blessing over those who are living single lives, Lord, that's looking for their mate. God, there's that special person out there for them. Lord, I pray that each young lady will find the husband of her dream. God, that each young man will find the wife of his dream and that they will find each other and build a beautiful life together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you.